Hi, I'm David Freudberg. Each week at the Humankind on Public Radio podcast, we strive to practice the simple art of listening. At times, it can feel like a lost art in our noisy world. And of course, not everything is worth listening to. But for me, when I'm able to get centered, listening can be almost a sacred experience, a moment of focused attention that accords the speaker a measure of dignity. If you value this too, please help others to find our podcast. Consider going to Humankind on Public Radio at iTunes and leave us a kind review. And thanks for listening. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. Support for this special series, Passengers, is provided by the American Public Transportation Association at publictransportation.org. We are using a lot of oil. We are uh, emitting a lot of global warming pollution, carbon dioxide pollution of the atmosphere. Our cars and light trucks alone are 20% of U.S. carbon dioxide pollution, which is causing global warming. Uh, more than half of Americans live in areas with air that is unhealthy to breathe. Ozone pollution that causes smog comes out of our tailpipes. Uh, it comes out of our truck tailpipes. It is a huge problem. How our transportation choices affect the air we breathe on the planet we inhabit. You're listening to Passengers, a special series from Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Pollution emitted by the tailpipes of our cars, SUVs, and light trucks noticeable effects on human health, especially on days designated a smog alert. Unburned fuel vapors form ground-level ozone, the major component of smog, which can cause coughing and stinging eyes. Our vehicles also produce carbon monoxide, an odorless but toxic gas, which reduces the volume of oxygen entering your bloodstream. Spurred by federal regulation, the auto industry has tried to address the problem, says James Corliss, Director of Transportation for America, a coalition of public interest groups. We've made remarkable efficiency gains in, in engine technology, in, in passenger vehicle technology in the last 30 years. Um, I mean, first by taking the lead out of gasoline, that was, the, that was, that was a huge thing to do for public health. Um, but then we actually have had more efficient cars. The problem is we're driving them so much more that we've actually overwhelmed any gains we made from those, those efficiencies. We need to stop assuming that uh, an oil-dependent transportation system is the one we need into the future. Ann Mesnikoff directs the Sierra Club's Green Transportation Campaign in Washington. She says America needs to reduce its dependence on the private, gasoline-fueled automobile. Uh, if, if the high gas prices today, the turmoil in the Middle East, and the consequences that's having for our economy are not taken into account, in addition to global warming and in, in addition to the unhealthy air we breathe because we're burning so much oil, we will be having the same conversation 10, 15 years from now, wondering why we can't get from one city to another efficiently on a rail system. And then once you get into that city center, you will have transportation choices that will allow you to get to a meeting you have, get to a museum you want to get to, to get to somebody you want to visit. Looking at today's American landscape, especially the auto-centric metropolitan areas where most of us live, 
It's hard to believe that Henry Ford didn't build his first car until 1896. It must have been a wild, noisy, bumpy ride on unpaved dirt roads. And as the popularity of cars surged during the 20th century, our natural landscape was dramatically altered to accommodate them. University of California, Berkeley, urban planning professor Robert Cervero. If you counted the amount of land given over to asphalt and pavement, streets and highways and motorways, as well as parking, um, in a lot of cities, 45, 50% of the total land of a city is this impervious uh, asphalt paved surface. One effect of this is to produce what's known as an urban heat island, in which a metropolitan area is significantly warmer than outlying rural environs. The difference is striking at times of low wind. The cities are hotter. That creates demands for energy. You know, during the summers, crises like in Chicago, where you had hundreds of people dying during the heat island period, effects when you had very high summer temperatures and the amount of energy, electricity we spent on running air conditioners. So, you know, that's something you can somewhat indirectly trace back to the fact that we design our amount of parking and road space to serve congested traffic during those peak conditions. Plus, you get oil stain runoff in, into streams and water pollution. So if you start tallying all these little things, in addition to the fact that uh, we have to have fossil fuel supplies that are imported from the Middle East, and we have to uh, have a military over there to, to really ensure, safeguard the flows of oil out of OPEC countries to the U.S. We're an oil-dependent society. Start associating those costs to a car-dependent lifestyle, that which you can really characterize as America, uh, then I would say the environmental footprint is enormous. You know, add air pollution and the lost wages and suffering that goes from the fact that when you have photochemical smog and ozone and temperature inversions, you get huge swings in, in, in uh, new uh, hospitalizations, lost wages, asthma, emphysema, incidences go up, premature deaths. If you start running those numbers, they add up. And there's another consequence. Each gallon of gasoline burned in your car produces more than 19 pounds of carbon dioxide, which contributes to the greenhouse effect associated with global warming. And according to the Environmental Protection Agency, the average American vehicle emits six to nine tons of carbon dioxide each year. Climate change is happening now. It's happening in our own backyards, as well as around the world. Dr. Jane Lubchenko, an environmental scientist, heads NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, which operates the National Weather Service. We are seeing more and more extreme precipitation events. When it rains, that rains are much heavier downpours. We are seeing an increase in these heavy downpours around the U.S., Another impact that's reported is an increase in the number of very hot days. The carbon footprint, suffice to say, is enormous, exactly what it is. Um, it's hard to measure, but I would say it's probably much larger than more, most people are aware because of these kind of indirect hidden uh, uh, sources of pollution that we can really begin to back count and, and associate with car-dependent living. So for people looking to public transit with its relatively low emissions as a way to reduce their carbon footprint, what's the most climate-friendly way to go? University of California professor Robert Cervero. 
in most instances, in big cities, uh, heavy rail transit, subways, are going to be the most energy efficient, smallest environmental footprint, most cost-effective form of public transit available. So we're talking about subways, metros like in New York, or Los Angeles Metro, or the San Francisco BART. Most Americans live and work in suburban communities which generally lack energy-efficient subway systems. A great deal of travel in America today takes place from suburb to suburb, where public transportation options are often fewer than in the city, and total time of a public transit trip can be significantly longer. In the merging markets, where most of the growth is happening, a much more flexible, versatile technology, a rubber tire bus, is going to be the, a much more cost-effective that's going to do a better job of drawing people out of cars, creating environmental energy savings benefits. A passenger in a wheelchair rolls onto a low-floor bus on the Silver Line of the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority at South Station in Boston. It's considered bus rapid transit, mode which emphasizes buses that travel in reserved lanes for most or all of the route and have fewer stops. In some cases, bus rapid transit uses a system program to recognize when a bus approaches an intersection. The signal turns green for the bus and red for the crossing traffic. But prioritizing buses generally means giving up a lane previously used by cars. And that can be a hard sell in our auto-centric society. Most of us who drive probably don't give much thought to turning on our car's ignition, but environmentally, that's where the rubber meets the road. Some auto pollutants are colorless and odorless, and we may not be aware of their effects. So what is one motorist's impact on daunting global problems like climate change? Well, each individual person on any given day is not contributing that much. Lewis in Lamb in San Francisco advises state governments on climate change policies. But if you multiply that by 365 days a year, by the millions of people in the United States and around the world who are doing that every day that they're driving their car, then it's adding up to a lot. And in the United States, we estimate on an annual basis that transportation contributes about a third of the greenhouse gas emissions. So about a third of the chemicals that are going into the air, the effect of that comes from transportation. You know, you're just putting not good stuff into the environment. In Charlotte, North Carolina, Chatham Olive is an environmental activist and green energy entrepreneur. I mean, you wouldn't want to sit down by a tailpipe of a car and sit there within proximity of that and just breathe that regularly, would you? Well, think about thousands and thousands and thousands of these cars just sitting there putting that into the atmosphere. People concerned about air quality and climate change activists seek to reduce harmful automotive emissions. One strategy has been to improve fuel efficiency and promote use of hybrid or electric vehicles and thus reduce the amount of petroleum products being burned. But how big of a dent will these and other technical fixes put in the problem? Robert Cervero at UC Berkeley. More fuel-efficient vehicles, less fuel-demanding, lower carbon content fuel supplies, that all will help. But it's being offset by the fact that we're 
growing as a population. There's more and more of us. We're over 300 million now. We're making longer trips. So if you factor in rising vehicle miles traveled, they're offsetting some of these technological gains. So in terms of our abilities to achieve Kyoto Protocol kinds of targets in, in reducing carbon emissions, uh, technology, all the numbers tell us, are, is insufficient in and of itself. Robert Cervero believes there's no getting around a need to design cities differently, to make them less dependent on private cars and more conducive to riding public transit, cycling, and walking. You're listening to Passengers, a documentary project about public transportation from humankind. I'm David Freudberg. For more information on Passengers, including links to studies, videos, historical documents, and information about transit in your area, please visit our website, humanmedia.org. It's nearly dinner time on a chilly afternoon at the Jamaica Plain Greenhouse in Boston, where Ken Ward and Andre Zaleska live with their three boys. In 2010, the family moved into this 100-year-old former neighborhood store, which they've retrofitted as an experiment in low-carbon living. There's no central heating and no gas or oil bills for the two-story building. They did put in an electrically operated pump that doesn't generate heat but moves it efficiently around. Because of the triple glazed windows with southern exposure and airtight insulation they recently installed, the thermometer measures 66 degrees Fahrenheit inside but only 40 degrees outside. Andre Zaleska. So the environmental benefit's pretty clear if we're trying to live the low carbon lifestyle. Ideally, this house will be a zero-carbon um, entity pretty soon um, once we get some solar panels on it. The obvious thing you really have to give up if you're going to walk the talk is your car. On the other hand, that was the hardest part. It really was. For most people, living in a home without central heating or going car-free would seem like unreachable goals even to the environmentally committed. And for Andre, deciding to jettison her car was a process. It's amazing how it, it um, enables our sense of personal freedom to have a car available to jump into, even when most of the trips are quite meaningless. So, um, so I, I actually, you know, did sort of a lot of philosophizing and thinking about this um, in general while letting go of the car. And then the car finally broke down, and that was the end of it, you know. Um, it really did not seem like the kind of thing I wanted to put a few thousand dollars into getting another one. See, the thing is, I love cars. I love driving. I, I love driving fast. I love figuring out how to drive in the snow. So I kind of miss all that. Ken Ward, Andre's partner, has led the renovation project and also works part-time at an environmental organization. The family owns no cars, so to get around, they walk, bike, rely on public transportation about a mile away, sometimes borrow Ken's sister's car, and also rent a few hours at a time from a car-sharing service called Zipcar. It's a health factor. There's a kind of, I don't know, moral factor, I suppose. But the thing I've noticed is... Um, I don't really like to bike either. So I'm just getting very focused on what's actually here. Like, so instead of when I had a car, if I wanted to go to, I don't know, get a 
coffee or something. I would drive to the place I knew I liked. And now I just figure out, well, okay, these are the ones I can walk to, so I'll just learn to like those. And as it turns out, I quite like, you know, the things that are more accessible. So I'm, I'm, I'm more local, and I'm, I know more people because I walk from here to there, and I meet the neighbors. I have a sense of who's living beyond one block, which is unusual in my life. And so, but I, st- I still miss the driving. No, it's just fun. One pleasure Ken does partake of is a particularly scrumptious sticky bun at a local bakery he frequents while walking in the neighborhood. Even Ken and Andre's 12-year-old son, Kuba, seems cool with his family's not owning a car. It's like, I definitely feel better when I'm not, when we're not driving around too much. Because? Because I don't really want the world to end up like all black and, like, disgusting. Sooty? Yeah. But using a car without owning one means a trek, usually for Andre, by bike or foot to pick up the car share parked near the public transit station at Forest Hills, which adds a complication for Cuba, whose passion is not only for the environment. I have hockey practice and hockey a lot, so it's you have to factor in the time it gets there and... The time you um you have to get the car and uh like to get ready for the practice or the game. Does that added time to your preparations take time away from other things that you might be doing otherwise? Um, yeah, but it's not that significant. Like I'm before practice I'm usually at home, like having dinner, just chilling. Yeah, yeah chilling. <laughs> Joining us around the table at the Jamaica Plain Greenhouse is Loe Hayes, a former book editor turned environmentalist. She lives about 10 minutes away in the Mission Hill section of Boston. We have a, one car for our four-person household, um, so I'm not living a car-free lifestyle, um, but we um, gave up our, our, our second car oh, maybe two years ago now, um, and... I certainly uh, have not missed it at all in that time. Um, And when I think about um, the things that I want in my life, I think about, oh, wouldn't it be great to have a smartphone so that I could check my email while I'm riding on the subway? (laughs) But I don't think about, um, wouldn't it be nice if I had a second car? (laughs) It doesn't cross my mind at all. (laughs) To what extent has getting rid of one of the cars in your home caused uh, inconvenience or even hardship? Well, certainly there's an inconvenience in not being able to hop in the car and run out and do an errand, but I'm not sure that it's caused any hardship. Uh, My children certainly would say, you know, they don't get as much rides as they want to, uh, but they get plenty of rides with one car among the four of us. Um, I mean, the main thing is that it slows down your life. And to me, that's not a hardship at all. Because? I mean, because um, you get more time to reflect on what's happening. And our lives are just so full of um, the constant um, pushing to accomplish something or to produce something. I have meetings in lots of different neighborhoods 
Um, I'm more thoughtful about my planning for those meetings. Like Kuba was saying about you need to plan for getting to hockey. I actually enjoy the planning process. I like maps and I have internet access at home so I can go on and look at 14 different ways to get from my house to Andre's house and figure out, well, if I'm leaving at this time or should I walk or should I take the bus and the train or just the train and then walk? And um, that, that intentionality of getting to somewhere is actually a pleasure. Yes, it does take me more time to get there. And there's a little more time in planning, although I'm pretty used to the planning now, so I can do that pretty quickly and make those decisions. You mentioned you have internet access. Do you use a service called Google Transit? Yes, and I love that it has four side-by-side icons, driving, public transit, walking, and biking, um, so that you can get directions, times, routes, um, the whole thing, and, and compare them all and figure out, well, if it's raining at 2 o'clock, I'll need to switch to this option because I don't want to be on the bike or whatever. Google Transit is free. Just go to google.com and type in Google Transit. It's a remarkable resource for computer users. Just enter where you are, where you want to go, and when, and Google Transit gives you the options. One voice that does not advocate a car-free lifestyle is the AAA, also known as the American Automobile Association, founded in Chicago in 1902. Famous for its roadside service to stranded motorists and its travel maps, the AAA has 52 million members in the United States. The group has sometimes clashed with environmentalists, such as when it opposed certain fuel economy standards, when its Southern California club worked against a statewide referendum to reduce petroleum consumption. I sat down with the president of AAA, Bob Darbelnay, at their national headquarters in Heathrow, Florida. How seriously do you take the problem of climate change? Very seriously, although, frankly, it is a very complicated topic, and I don't feel that I'm qualified to opine on Uh, the actual uh, causes or the extent to which different sources of pollution are contributing to to the issue. But clearly we have a concern with the environment. Uh, We can't be involved in the type of activity that we are involved in without considering that. And so we are advocates for uh, more thoughtful use of the automobile. Uh, We're supportive of all the changes that have occurred to make automobiles a smaller contributor to Um, the pollution uh, concerns that otherwise exist. Um, But I don't know that we have uh, been able to determine uh, exactly what the magnitude of uh, the global warming problem is, nor what the solution is. But clearly we are concerned about the environment. Can we conclude, though, that the transportation sector is a huge contributor to the emissions that are associated with climate change? I I think it is a contributor, um, and in some countries it's a more important contributor perhaps than others. Is Uh, this one? Not necessarily, because if we look, and it depends on what we consider to be within transportation. Um, 
if we're, uh, there's a tendency, I think, um, to take a shortcut that might involve attributing this to the automobile as opposed to buses and trucks. And the calculation can be somewhat complex. Walking and biking are certainly climate friendly. But for many people, it may come down to a choice between private cars and public transit. To understand the comparison, I visited the U.S. Department of Transportation in Washington and spoke with Roy Keenitz, the Undersecretary of Transportation. If you do the analysis in the strictest terms and you use public transportation writ large, that consists of trains and buses. Buses powered by diesel fuel, trains powered by electricity, and then the electricity comes from either nuclear or oil burning or natural gas or coal or some other source. So you can do that very sort of apples to apples comparison. And what you generally find is a full train or a full bus is much, much less polluting and much more energy efficient. But an empty train and an empty bus, not so much. The thing that so many... So the, the, the load of buses averaged over a day. So yeah. It's much more energy efficient to use public transportation, but it depends in cities where the vehicles are crowded, much more so than in cities where the vehicles aren't so crowded. But the factor that is often not taken into account in those very simple apple-to-apples comparison is people who are habitual transit riders own fewer cars per capita. And owning fewer cars per household is strongly associated with a lot less driving per household, not just associated with that one transit trip. We have indiscriminate use of cars. People use it almost for any and all purposes, even to go um, two blocks away to pick up a loaf of bread if people will drive. And these short trips have a large environmental footprint, says Robert Cervero, director of the California Transportation Center at the University of California, Berkeley. The person typically with an internal combustion engine, when they turn on the key and the first few miles they're traveling, uh, you get a fairly inefficient cold catalytic converter, so you get disproportionately high tailpipe emission rates of all the emissions, including carbon dioxide, particular matter, volatile organic gases, NOxs, all the things that contribute to pollution. So the first few miles we drive a car are the dirtiest miles of the car. Um, a lot of people drive short distances, uh, distances they could walk or bike or take public transit. They still drive because we simply make it too convenient. Seventy percent of the oil consumed in the U.S. is consumed in the transportation sector. James Corliss, director of Transportation for America in Washington. We really do burn oil to move around. That's that's a lot of what we do. You know, we a little bit to, to, to generate power, uh, to generate home heating, but most it's to get from point A to point B. Um, and look, it's a it, it, it's it's not a, it's it's a it's an efficient way to do that. If law, if if oil was unlimited, didn't have environmental and health impacts, uh, and didn't happen to be mostly buried under nations that don't particularly like us very much, so we've got to get off oil. Welcome aboard Metro Bus. Residents will get free rides on Northern Virginia bus routes on code red days, days when ozone levels are predicted to be extremely high and the air quality. Very poor. Health problems can result from photochemical smog, which is produced when sunlight hits various pollutants in the atmosphere. Motor vehicle emissions are a huge contributor. Particularly vulnerable are the elderly, children, and people afflicted with asthma, bronchitis, and other conditions. On the other side of the equation, consider this research finding about public transportation. Because most users walk to and from the transit stop, 
they tend to lose more weight than people sitting in their cars, an average of six and a half pounds per year, according to a University of Pennsylvania study. U.S. Transportation Undersecretary Roy Keenitz. Every transit trip uh, begins and ends with a walking trip because you, the, the bus or the train doesn't go to your house, right? It's not parked in your driveway when you come out in the morning, so you have to get to it somehow. And maybe you ride your bike, but most people will walk. They'll walk down to the corner to the bus stop. In the morning, I get up, I walk a half a mile to the train, uh, and then at the end of the day, I walk a half a mile back. And I sure, I grumble about it when it's raining, but the net result is most weekdays I'm walking a mile, even if all I do is come in and sit at my desk all day. Um, I hope that has some personal benefit for me and for the other people who do that too. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart. Associate producer Mike Jansen. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal, Kathy Graham, Fred Yant, and Art Cohen. Some musical compositions by Gunnar Debosi. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to WAMU 88.5 in Washington, D.C., and to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, part three of Passengers, is Humankind program number 163. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. If you want to support the program, please visit humanmedia.org. And at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.